0: Welcome to the Baxter Bowman Podcast. If you're obsessed with the strategies, gear and stories that will make you a better backcountry bow hunter, you're in the right place. We're independent, unsponsored and unbiased so we can cut the fluff and give you detailed advice on what really works and what doesn't. Today's podcast is part of the Hunt Elk in 2020 series where I walk my friend and new bow hunter Josh through what he needs to know for his first over-the-counter public land bow hunt. It's based on everything I learned that made me successful for three out of the first four years I bow-hunted elk. I've found that I'm learning just as much as he is from this process, and I hope you do too. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Baxter Bowman Podcast. I'm Baxter, and I'm here with... This is Josh. Josh is on the line. So Josh, we got a good one today. We're talking about driving versus flying and when to go. So like a lot of different logistics in the theme of planning your elk hunt. So you ready for this one?
1: I am ready because I don't have a car. So I don't know if I can drive, but maybe rental. I don't know. We'll have to figure it out. (laughs) It'd be perfect.
0: We've been... uh, You've been putting in the time in with the turkeys last few weekends. Uh, so you're learning the the sweet taste of failure so far, right?
1: Yeah. Four weekends in a row. I heard four gobblers. No, five out of four weekends. Uh, one weekend in the rain, which was a little miserable going solo, but it's all good training for elk season. Going back this weekend with my brother. We'll <laughs> see if we can make something happen. Yeah,
0: man, I'm proud of you for doing that. Uh, public land turkeys on stuff that's near the Bay Area in California is brutal Yeah, i went with josh uh once or twice and bike went with josh i mean i stayed 20 feet away from josh uh and uh i'm fully convinced there's like one turkey in a 20 square acre area so (laughs) yeah i'm gonna
1: try a slightly different area this weekend and then also for those listening maybe next year or something you're like 20 feet why We're we're recording this april end of april ish and uh, coronavirus is the, the like news of this of the century right now.
0: Yep, it's here. But uh, we're doing everything we can to stay safe, <laughs> be safe. So it's all good. But fun subjects. Planning for September, right? September won't be canceled. Um, driving and flying. So you said you, know, you don't have a car, and I know you've rented one for these trips the past few weeks. Um, and maybe we can talk a little bit about the pros and cons of each approach. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I've done both, right? I've flown to a lot of flights. I've flown a lot of flights. I've flown to a lot of places to hunt in New Zealand, Hawaii, uh, even some places out here in the US. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a wrong answer for either one, but there's definitely a lot of things to consider. So, so maybe we talk driving first uh, and talk about some of the, the benefits of that and uh, break it down from there.
1: Cool. Sounds good.
0: Yeah. So in my mind, you know, this is aligned with the articles on doromecom as always but there's really four things uh, when it comes to driving first is simplicity right like super easy to throw your stuff in a car and just drive straight there um, can't be underestimated like just the amount of logistics to deal with this stuff is great and I mean as you know there's just a ton of stuff you got to put put in something but I guess that equation changes a lot if you've got to hire the car anyway right mm-hmm Yeah. And it's, I mean, I think a lot of guys also go that route because it's cheaper, right? Especially if you're carpooling, if you can, you know, get a buddy to go to Idaho or Colorado, it's probably only going to be like a hundred or $200 of gas. So it's, it's generally not that bad, uh, but a flight isn't that expensive anyway. Um, And I do think that like, if you're solo, like in your case too, you know, often a flight can be about the same price because you're paying for all the gas, maybe the rental, all that. That sort of stuff, right?
1: Right, and then if I fly somewhere, I'll still end up having to rent a car anyway to go to the actual spot.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It's it's pretty much the same thing, right? It's Mm -hmm. it's a it's a cost of flying. Like you're gonna have to do both, yeah, anyway. And I think the other, you're the one of the big factors you're hitting on too is the type of car. Because if you're renting a car, it's pretty expensive or difficult to get an all-wheel drive or a four by four type thing, Mm -hmm. and so that kind of Limits some of the roads you can go down, some of the places. You know, September tends to be pretty dry, but you know, there's you go up a dirt road with a two-wheel drive vehicle and <laughs> you can get stuck in there pretty easy. So, it's something to think about. Right. Yeah. Uh, as far as driving from home too, you do get. I think the biggest one for a lot of guys is the amount of gear. Right. So if you're flying, you've got basically two bags. That uh, depends on who you're flying with, of course, but two two bags free for on Southwest and that's like with the amount of stuff you're bringing, that's a, that's a pretty big change from like the whole backseat of a car, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. And simplicity too. You got to check in the gun and that takes so long
0: and, or the, the bow and all that. And Yep. Yeah. And I think it also limits, you know, like if your strategy up there, we talked a bit about that last week, but, you know, car camping is a little harder if you got to fly because you don't necessarily have, yeah, that backup gear, like we've talked about, you know, my favorite thing is the mattress in the truck or an extra tent or extra sleeping bags, so not the pack on pack stuff for the the bag. But if you do fly, you know, it's something you've got to think about and that you're not going to be able to bring your base camp stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of the, and those are the pros for driving. You get all that, the easy use, the cost, the extra gear. I mean, one other thing is that it's just a lot easier to transport meat right? Um, And that's probably the biggest hangup guys get stuck on. So have you thought about that?
1: Yeah, that's, that's actually the first thing that came to mind in terms of pros and cons for driving and flying. Cause last October um, I flew to Texas, did a, my first deer hunt there, just wanted to get a good experience, wanted to feel what it feels like to shoot something and learn how to skin it and gut and whatnot. And so I flew back with some of the meat, you know, with dry ice and whatnot, maybe 40 pounds or so. Mm -hmm. But another I think maybe another 40 ish pounds of meat was processed in a processor near there and they had to ship it back. And it ended up costing way more than I expected it oh, to yeah. cost because of the shipping. It was like 300 bucks just to ship it back. And That's so a good deal actually, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Maybe it was more than, I, I don't remember exactly. I remember it was hundreds of dollars yeah. and uh, yeah, I did not <laughs> expect to have to pay that much just to transport the meat back.
0: Yeah. And we can talk, I've got plenty of tips for that for guys that go elk hunting too, like how to get it back. Mm-hmm. But I think the general gist is like, if you're ever flying, you want to bring it, you want to do one of two things. You want to either go back and drive it drive it back home or you want to bring all of it on the plane with you. Cause yeah, paying someone to ship it is, oh, it's brutal.
1: Yeah. So money. Bringing all that elk <laughs> on a flight also seems pretty brutal. <laughs> so yeah. As of, as of right now, I don't see many pros for flying, Yeah, uh, but I'm curious to hear what you got to say.
0: Yeah. Well, there's, so in my mind, three pros for flying, right? One's fast. You know, we've been over this, like my, my mantra is always how much time are you spending where you can kill elk. So if it's going to be a big difference, you know, I think for us, it's not as big a deal. It's a 12 hour, 12 to 15 hour drive to Mm -hmm. Colorado or Idaho, depending guys on the East coast, it's 24, 30 hours. Holy moly guys. Right. That's a serious deal. So, you know, if you're saving an extra day of hunting time, that's, that's a huge thing to weigh in. That's going to boost your success rate, you know? Would you say then for guys on the East
1: coast, it'd probably be a better idea to fly and then rent a four wheeler or, I mean, a four by four versus from West coast guys to maybe drive.
0: Yeah. I think it's, it just depends on your individual situation. Oh, and I totally forgot. We'll get at the end of this too. We'll talk about kind of my recipe for hunting 10 days with only uh, taking five days of vacation time. So I think you can actually combine the two you are know, driving and flying to get the maximum amount of time. Nice on that, on it. So that's, that's a good one for them too. Right. Cool. Yeah. It's, I mean, other than it being super fast, flying is also way less tiring. No duh. I mean, I feel like this first bit, we're just listing out some no duhs, but we'll, we'll get deep here. Uh, but driving 24 hours, man. Oh, that's pretty brutal. If it's only two, maybe three guys, um, you just, you show up worn out and like, oh, cutting is going to wear you out no matter what. So of. Get to the starting line and be tired is that's brutal.
1: Yeah, I didn't think about that. I've never driven longer than maybe six or seven hours in a
0: stretch. So, yeah, I can't imagine what 24 is like. Yeah, it's solid for sure. Uh, and then the last one for me, you know, if you own it, if you do own a car, not as much for you, but like it's a lot of wear and tear on the truck, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's an extra, an extra 3,000 mile, 2,000 mile round trip for a lot of guys even 4,000 miles if you're really coming from like Maine or something. But that's, uh, I mean, that's expensive, right? If you look at the useful life of a car and depreciation, all that jazz, like that's, you know, that's a, a lot of money you're not really factoring in. So yeah, I think it's, if you're pretty far away, it's more of a no-brainer. But for us, we're a little closer, it might be easy. But you know, that being said, there's a lot of like little hacks you can do for flying. Um I think one of the biggest things I always tell guys is like, make sure you have really strong arrows or a small target. <laughs> it's one of the things people don't think through is they, they show up here and they don't have a way to sight in their bow mm-hmm. or, uh, or deal with stuff like that. So you can always put on a little, uh, what do you call it? Like a blunt uh, tip, use that to shoot a stump or something like that. If you got a really strong arrow or you could just try to find a little tiny target, right? That's one way to get around that one. Um, The way guys pack for flights, too. Basically, I'm just trying to, like, come out with ways for guys to get around the pain of a flight because I know a lot Mm -hmm. of guys just like to go drive. But you're packing really smart. You can actually put a ton of your stuff in the bow case itself. A lot of guys don't do that. It's put like, all your soft clothes and everything that's not hard there. And you should be able to easily get everything in, like, your bow case in one other bag.
1: Oh, God. And it simultaneously can protect the bow from rattling around in that case, too, right?
0: Yeah, totally. And I, you know, the best way is usually just to do bow in one case and then your backpack in another. And a lot of guys will just check their backpack, but I really don't recommend against that because I've done it before. And what will happen is your little strap will get stuck in the, the carrier or whatever's you know the, the crew that's unloading it mm-hmm. does to it, and it'll pop that thing. And, man, that can be a trip-ending thing if you show up with one of your pieces of your pack not working because so you can't pack an elk out or something like that.
1: Oh, so you normally you normally don't recommend checking in your backpack?
0: Yeah, if, if you do, um, I do recommend checking it as its own thing because that's one way to deal with it. But if you can't take it as a carry-on, because a lot of them are pretty big. Yeah. But I would just buy a cheap duffel, right? You can get like a $20, $30 nylon duffel on Amazon. That's the size of your pack. Just zip the pack in that thing. And that, that thing gotcha. is going to take the beating. That 20 bucks is cheap insurance, right? Right, right for dealing with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then back to the fun stuff, right? What you're talking about with meat transport and there's a lot of really funky creative ways to get around that. Um, Like we talked about, it's expensive. I know guys that have shipped elk meat. It's been like 600 to 1500 bucks. I know that sounds crazy, but if you're like, it's just on a poundage basis and the more obscure place you are, the more difficult it is for the shipping company to deal with. So Mm -hmm. you just don't want to do that. That's the quick answer to shipping meat. Um, but taking it on the flight is actually not quite as bad as you'd think because extra bags are usually like, you know, 50 bucks, 75 bucks. Definitely when you're booking flights, you want to check how many bags they allow you to take max. Because like simple math here, you knock down a 700 pound elk, you know, only call it 300 pounds, 200 pounds if it comes out with you. Then after it's butchered, and if you're not doing a lot of sausage or something where they're adding stuff to it, you're to mm-hmm. drop it down again, you'll end up with 150 to maybe 200 pounds max. So that's only three or four bags. And what they can do is just get these little foam coolers, or they call them fish boxes too, which is just waterproof cardboard boxes. Mm-hmm. You put, take it to the butcher, have them butcher it out there, throw it in that, throw dry ice on it, and you're good to go. And so- yeah. Yeah. Four bags times 50 bucks, 200 bucks. That sucks, but that's a heck of a lot better than $800 for shipping it. Right. Right.
1: Right. And then uh, can they butcher it that quickly or do you have to stay for a a few extra days and give them time to butcher it completely to get it into those fish boxes?
0: Yeah, no, that's a good question. And most butchers, I'd say well, well over 90% of them have like an expedited service, even if they don't list it. You know, if you tell them, Hey, I need this done in 24 hours and I'll give you an extra hundred bucks or something like that. that Mm Then they generally will do it. Um, The only danger is if they, if you want them to do custom sausages and that sort of thing. Right. But I also think there's not, like you don't have to fly with it then like a lot of butchers like time, right? If you drop it off at a standard or a quality butcher, that's going to like truly just treat your elk as its own thing and do not mix it in with other elk to do sausage and that sort of deal. They're going to want two or three weeks to deal with it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not the end of the world. You shoot one the last day or two, just leave it there with the butcher. Say, I'll come back for it. You don't even have to tell them that. Just tell me, hey, when is it going to be ready? And they're usually fine with like a two or three week buffer on the back of when it's ready anyway. And then just, you know, October is not really a hot tourist time. Book a one-way flight in a one-way car. Go back, grab it, drive through the night. You're good to go. Um, Another bonus of that is you get like a cool... Cool little scouting or fishing or whatever trip thrown on for a weekend, right? Um, so it's not that big of a deal, right? That that flight plus a car might only be like 300, 200 bucks. So mm-hmm. there you go, right? One way and then rent a car and then drive it back. Got it? Yeah, totally. So it's not that's not that big of a deal. Um, you can you can find ways to make it work. Um, the you know, I think the other thing about flying though is you do have to make sure you plan ahead a little more stuff like gas canisters, batteries, spare spray, you can't really take that on the plane. Mm-hmm. So make sure you've got a way to pick that up you know, wherever you're going. So if you're trying to figure out the difference between those two, it's, you know, another thing.
1: Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's something I totally didn't think about last year until maybe the week leading up to my scouting trip to Colorado. And then I, because I realized I couldn't bring the Jetboil canister on the flight. Yeah. So I had to Amazon Prime ship it over to Uh, buddy's house and then picked it up there yeah Um,
0: and you can do that to hotels too. hotels most of the time you call ahead and say i'm staying with you thursday night can i have something shipped here and you just hold it yeah absolutely you can ask actually ask a post office to do that too okay a little more complicated but they're by law they're gonna let you ship stuff there and hold it for a little bit um that's another way to to deal with that um sort of thing but
1: Can you do Amazon? Like, doesn't Amazon have like pickup locations now? Can you do that like a local grocery store?
0: Yeah, exactly. Whole Foods, if there's one there, right? There's a lot Mm -hmm. of things. So there's always ways to get around it. You know, I, I don't let those things be the blocker for you. Yeah. But, you know, another good tip with that though, is if you're like, I want protection, I want bear spray. You actually can pack a pistol inside of another bag. A lot of guys think they have to have a standalone deal, but you can put a pistol in a tiny little Pelican case. that's like 40 bucks with two locks on it or whatever it is and throw that in your bag and you can be darn sure they're not going to lose your bag <laughs> because right. when they know there's a firearm on it, they really pay attention. So I actually don't mind doing that because now you've got a hundred percent guarantee that airport or that airline is really tracking your bags because they do not want to lose a firearm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I actually think I saw something on YouTube years ago where this guy talks about these air, airport or like flying hacks and i think he like wanted to uh say he had it he wanted to declare a weapon in his luggage i don't know if it was gun or knife mm-hmm. i don't know what it was but he gets it so they tag it with like a weapon even though he doesn't have one in there every single time just to ensure that he never loses his bag <laughs>
0: Know that works or I was going to say fly, they'll take but. you over there to have you look at it. So, okay. Yeah. Never mind. I don't, I don't know where I heard that, but yeah. Well, I mean, it's not a bad strategy. It really, it genuinely works. So it's mm-hmm. something to do if you're flying, but yeah. So that's, I mean, that's kind of it for driving versus flying and it's like all these things. It's really on your situation, but any thoughts on what, uh, what you're feeling like? Yeah. Well,
1: so hmm, I either have to fly rent a car there, hopefully I'm successful, and then drive it back, I think, because to, then I can get the meat all back. Mm-hmm. I think that would be the most cost-effective way to do it. Or rent a car here, drive it there, hunt, and then rent and then drive it back. Yeah. So I don't think I should do a round-trip
0: flight. Yeah. I mean, it seems like if you're already going to be running a car... I would probably just fly and then you could rent one there. You know, mm-hmm. it's going to save you time. It's going to be pretty easy. But uh, yeah, and then just drive it back. Yeah, and just, just go from there. Not too bad. Right. right. If
1: I do say, like, if I plan the rental car and I'm like, hey, I'm going to pick it up at blah, blah, blah airport and then return it to San Jose airport or San Francisco airport. What if I'm not successful <laughs> <laughs> and I want to just last minute, like, screw it, I'm exhausted. I don't want to drive 12, 16 hours. It back i just want to
0: <laughs> drop yeah. it back off at bubble blah, wire blah, blah, airport and fly back one way that's a really good point we'll cover this and then like how to hunt 10 days with five days of vacation time bit but i actually end up driving and flying like i combine both which is a yeah. really cool strategy to get a ton of more hunting time but one of the things that's pretty important with that strategy is booking refundable airplane flights which oh. right now in a world of coronavirus pretty much every every plane is so that's kind of nice right one silver lining, but normally Southwest will do that. Alaska with certain fares, like you can, you know, all you got to do is cancel 10 minutes ahead of time. So I go ahead and I book the return if I ever think I'm going to have one. And then if I don't need it or I don't want it, you just cancel it. And you've got oh, a year interesting. anyway. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And this stuff takes effort, but, you know, effort now leads to better hunting then. So I'm all down for that. Yeah. And you've told me the five day,
1: 10 day uh, takes five days off, get 10 days hunting strategy. And it is so smart. So I'm very excited for people to get to hear that.
0: Yeah. Well, we'll hit, let's hit on like the best time to go. Cause I think that once they've got that, then they can, they'll fully understand how that strategy plays with it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, if you thought at all, like when you'd want to go in the month or read anything on that, um, well, I've read a little bit about it, and I saw on your blog.
1: I took a sneak peek, and it's about the <laughs> rut. Um, I've had, I've heard weird things about the moon, full moon mm-hmm. stuff, when the like. A certain amount of moon phase hits like the cow elk's eye like puts oh, them yeah. into like these hormones or some, something like that, <laughs> all the dark science um, of elk ruddery. So I've heard that. Um, I know labor days in September usually. So that's another day off. That's where I actually, uh, that's the weekend I went scouting last year. So that was nice to get an extra day. So
0: those are, that's about the combination of things I've heard. Yeah. That's well, all, it's all good stuff. And I think that's, this is one of the most commonly, misperceived ones because a lot of places publish like it's a really good kind of clickbaity thing to go with which is like what's the perfect moon phase for you know elk hunting this year and what's uh what's the perfect time that they always rut every year and you'll see a ton of articles like that because they get yeah. clicks right like everyone wants summer
1: summer rut. solstice or something like that i don't yeah. Know, remember <laughs> yeah
0: so maybe we can do is talk about like the different phases of the rut just because that's important to realize um but for me it boils down to a few things and they're like spoiler alert my take on this is it really doesn't matter that much when you go um a lot of it's on your hunting style but i don't think you're any more or less likely to be successful depending on when you time it whoa um, my jaw just dropped <laughs> right and guys do not believe that they really don't but i i'm a hundred percent believer in that um and that's due to a few things one rut timing is different every year The rut's different in every single area you go. The rut actually isn't the easiest time to call in the bulls, and the moon phase really doesn't have much of an effect. So we can hit each of those, but first, let's talk about why uh, or how the rut works. So generally, the elk in the summer, they're in herd group or bachelor groups, I should say, where it's just the bull elk are hanging out together, the cows and the calves are in a different area because there's no testosterone flowing, there's no breeding instinct, they're kind of just together for herd safety, no big deal. And so at some magical point, the hormones start kicking in, the velvet comes off, the bulls start getting a little more interested in the cows, but also really interested in, okay, who's the competition, right? Mm-hmm. So if you open August 31st, uh, you're probably going to be in what they're calling the pre-rut phase, which is the bulls are still either in those bachelor groups and they're almost like deer. They've got like daily habits and they're just kind of, going about their day without anything. You'll quickly transition into kind of a a pre-pre-rut in my mind, which is the bulls start moving around. They're trying to find cows. They're trying to suss out the competition a little more active, but they're interested in what's going on. Mm -hmm. Then you get into the true pre-rut phase, which is, okay, the the, uh, cows aren't rutting yet, but those bulls are trying to go get them. So they're trying to find them. They're trying to get their harem with them before just so they don't have to fight for them once they are there. So the big guys are, you know, yelling at the little guys, getting rid of them, moving them out. You know, they're getting a little bit vocal, a little bit aggressive. Then you get into the true peak of the rut. Cows are going into heat. Bulls are going nuts. There's fights. You know, stuff is crazy. Guys tend to think that's the best time to go. We'll talk about maybe why not here in a bit. And then you get into the post-rut, which is... You know, afterwards things dial down, the bulls eventually leave the cows again. That's generally into rifle season and they're hanging out solo, just trying to get back all that energy and weight, strength they lost during the crazy rut period. But you also will get second ruts. If a cow doesn't get bred, she'll go back into estrus, you know, 30 days later or something. So Whoa. what you're picking up here is that there's not a set recipe, right? Like there's a lot of different phases they can be in things can change. It's not really that set. Um, and so you guess the first point, and we can hit this one and then we'll discuss a little bit, but the rut timing is different every year. So there's been years I've pulled up um, in states that shall not be named, and there were elk going nuts on August 31st. I mean, straight up, still August, their are bugle fests, rutting, I don't know if the cow was in estrus, but they thought she was. They're going nuts, yeah. and so that's a lot of things, right? Was it a dry year? Did the year go early? Were they? Was there great grass? Who the heck knows, man? It's just random chance. Um, so mm-hmm. some years you'll get it. Then there's one of the years I was there. They didn't really do anything until like the last week of September, even though they were supposed to go middle of the month. Hmm. All that sort of stuff. So what you'll what you'll hear and what you brought up is the whole thing about cows so what triggers a cow going into estrus which is when she wants to breed uh, is the amount of light going into her pupil crazily enough oh wait is this the fall equinox this is the fall equinox yeah so that's september 22nd of 2020 and If you look at like a statistical probability chart, right, you're really geeking out on this of when this happens, most cows, majority of cows are going to go into estrus within five to 10 days of that period in time, September 22nd. Mm -hmm. So if you think about that, plus or minus 10 days, that's like October 1st to September 10th. That's like a a monstrous window, right?
1: I see, like a bell curve.
0: Yeah. And that's for most cows. And it only takes one, like bear that in mind. If you get one hot cow, the whole valley's going bonkers. <laughs> so you know, in reality, there's kind of this like 30 day window from early October to early September, where in theory, there can always be a hot cow. And that, like we also talked, that can move up, up or back, right? So I'm starting to destroy a little confidence for guys. They're like, well, you're telling me it's this giant thing. So when exactly does it happen? But that's kind of my point is there isn't really a point in time where you say this is the date, right? Mm-hmm. Traditional wisdom is try to go right in the middle of that because it's the highest distribution or like the highest odds of one. But I've just seen that be wrong time and time again. Um, does that makes sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And then you throw in the factor, like you said earlier,
1: that it can be location-specific too. And I'm starting to get the, <clears throat> starting to get the feeling that trying to time the rut is maybe at just way out of our control.
0: Totally. But the other thing you got to realize is getting back to some of our first episodes, the single most important thing in over the counter elk hunting for finding elk is avoiding humans, right? Mm -hmm. And so, the vast majority of guys are going to show up that second and third week of the month as well, right? Because they're going to go, oh, that's the 15th. That's when all the articles say it. That's when all the stuff is there. Um, Even like you're saying, the rut, you know, the second big point is that the rut is not it's different in every single area. So I've been, you know, some good practical stories on this. One year we were, we always had this same valley in Idaho past three years because it's dynamite. And we were two and a half miles up the valley, up this kind of side valley, right on the point. Oh man, it was September, I think it was 8th or 9th. And we had three or four bulls in that valley that were going crazy. I mean, out of their minds, screaming you know, I made a single call, and one come running over. Like it was just crazy. And that's September eighth. You know, we're like, wow, this is insane. The rut peaked early. Went out, you know, two days later, and talked to the guys that were at our trailhead or area, and we're like, oh yeah, did you have that crazy day? And they're like, what? We haven't heard an elk in four days. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> we're like, so does that mean it wasn't really the rut rut? Or that's that- the point, right? There is no like rut that happens across everything at the same time. It's hyper local. So you might actually get bulls in one part of the same valley that are in the rut because there's a cow that's hot, versus bulls oh. in the other part of that valley, no rut at all because no cows are hot. Interesting. So it's totally a micro thing. In one valley you're in, valley right over the hill might be going nuts. So it it didn't take long for me to realize that was the situation, and it's more about you know moving around and changing it up because one area they might be totally in the rut and other areas they might be a week out. Right. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And so they don't, you know, couple that with the timing and it's, it just really makes it a hit or miss scenario. Now I'm not saying you're less likely, like, are you going to be as likely to be in the rut? September 1st as the 15th. Probably not. Like you're going to have slightly higher odds of elk bugling the 15th, but that's kind of offset with another thing, which is the rut isn't the easiest time to call them in, which is counterintuitive. Guys think, oh, that's when they're bugling the most. Like that should be when I go get them. Uh, and you'll, you'll hear guys like Corey Jacobson, actually, they don't really talk about this a ton, but every now and then they'll let it slip that the easiest time to call in a bull is actually before the rut, huh. not, not during the rut. Because in the rut, the, the bulls already have a harem of cows, right? They've already got five or 10 cows they're smelling one, they go, oh man, this cow is like almost there or she is in the you know, in estrus. And they're like, they're not going to leave that cow for any reason, mm-hmm. right? Because why would you leave one to go find one? Yeah. So once they pot up like that, they're really hard uh, to call in. They're typically, you know, it's in their best interest just to run because why would I fight if I can just get away from the threat? So you have to be right on top of them when you call. You have to be very like have a very credible threat, uh, your strategies are going to change a ton as to how you're going to call them in. But I found it's just really it can be really frustrating because you'll get return calls, you'll get them to come back at you, but it can be really hard to pull them in.
1: Interesting. Okay. Yeah.
0: You know, maybe there's better callers than me that are that can do that. But I've I've heard that from a lot of guys too, um, and I've definitely called in plenty of pre-rut. And that uh, so that pre-rut phase is actually a pretty great phase too because. Like we said, they're looking for other, they're looking for two things. They're not only looking for cows, they're looking at the other bulls that are around because they want to mm-hmm. go, okay, what's the competition? What's going on? So you'll actually get bulls that come in silent to your bugles just because they want to see who you are in that pre-read right. So you might not get that epic, you know, back and forth bugling match, but the odds of you getting one to come to you are way higher. Mm-hmm. So if you find a bull, you can actually just rip a bugle or give him a cow call or something. And the odds of him coming over are pretty decent. Interesting. Yeah. So you see how it kind of balances out. You're likely to hear more during the peak of the rut, but it's harder to call him versus you'll hear less, but you might be able to call him in a little easier.
1: Gotcha. Interesting. Okay. So now I'm thinking the rut is where most people think that that's the best time to go somewhere around September 22nd. So Mm -hmm. maybe I should just scratch that off. Like don't go then. And then maybe go earlier somewhere in week one or two of September.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, it's not a bad strategy, but the other thing you got to factor into is like, how do you want to hunt? And I think everybody's got the things that they're good at, right? Like I'm particularly good at stalking in on elk from a background in spearfishing where it's like every little tiny movement is metered there. So I'm used to that and I have the patience for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you're good at that, it might be better for you to go early. But at the end of the day, like if you just go sometime in that range, the odds of you finding something good are,
1: they're pretty high. Got it. And another thought I was having as you were explaining like all these different stages and how hard it is to time and also how it's location specific, it could be so different. Is it better to not focus on trying to time it correctly and rather just really, really make sure you have a plan, a different set of strategies for
0: for which phase you end up in? Exactly. Yeah, that's spot on, man. Um, you don't want to say, like, I'm going during this time. This is how I'm going to hunt. And that's, I think, one of the things that will really, really reward guys. It will reward them if they're patient and if they're capable of just dropping their plans and adapting. Right. So if you're like, right. hey, this is how I'm going to hunt them if I don't hear anything. This is how I'm going to hunt them if they're in the pre rut. This is how I'm going to hunt them this way. That hinges on a lot of knowledge, right? You got to be able to identify what's going on and you got to have the knowledge of what to do but that's, that's one of those things we talked about. Like that's where this will come in handy. It's that knowledge. Well, that's what separates you from guys that kill elk or don't kill elk, right? If you know that sort of stuff, that's really, that's a huge advantage.
1: Got it. So then in terms of the best time in the month to go hunt, is there not an answer?
0: There's not generally, but let's, let's hit the moon phase thing. And then we'll, I'll come back and kind of sum it up. But that's the other factor guys go for, you know, the, other than the rut and the timing and all that sort of stuff based off the cows, there's this whole kind of thing around, oh man, the moon phase. So let me tell you the, the theory and then let me tell you why I think it's wrong. The theory is that the brighter it is at night, elk are almost always more active at night than during the day. So the brighter it is at night, the more active they are during the night, which then means that they're not going to be that active during the day. So the idea is that like when there's no full moon, is one of the best times when it's dark. Right, because they can't be as active at night. That means they're going to be more active during the day. Yippee! We get to kill more elk. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the way guys think about it. So if you look at all these charts, people are going to say, "Oh man, you know, no moon during the same time as the peak of the rut." The twenty second, I think this year is one of those years, and everybody's like, "That is the ultimate week to hunt elk." Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't, there's always the option of being wrong, right? Like that's that's <laughs> clearly there, but I don't. In my experience. I haven't found the moon to really, I have found, found it to have a big effect on the way elk behave, but I haven't found it to have a big effect on the way, like the success rate. Let me tell you why. Because if there is a moon where they're active a lot during the night, they're going to bed down a lot earlier, right? They'll go to, instead of maybe hanging out till nine or 10 in the morning, they might bed down at like seven or eight because they've been up all night. They're really tired. Mm-hmm. Versus when there's no moon, they're like, oh man, I can finally see I'm going to spend two or three hours doing my thing that being said if they bed down early that usually means they're more active in the middle of the day and i think the middle of the day is one of the best times to hunt elk already so it's not bad to be there during a, a bright moon cuz you're going to get a ton of elk activity during the middle of the day cuz they like we talked about they drink a ton of water you know 20 30 gallons of water a day so they've got to get up they've got to go get that they've got to mill around so you might notice their activity levels change during the day because of the moon, you definitely will notice that, but I don't think that makes them more or less huntable. It's just where in the day is the huntable period, right?
1: Oh, god! it. Is the huntable period during the middle of the day or on the shoulders? Um, and I'm starting to get the theme here that it's less about trying to time it perfect with all the right situation because it's kind of out of our control and more about changing your strategy and knowing how elk behave.
0: Totally. Yeah. And I think that's the, everyone wants the easy route, right? They want the, like I won the lottery and elk walks in and I bugle once and shoot it, but you know, that might happen. It'd be awesome, but there's just no way to predict it. Right. That's the moral of the story is it's more of like you said, about how you hunt than, than trying to pick that up. And, you know, if I knew there was a magic date and there was a good time to go, you'd see me going that same time every year, but I've changed times of hunted during the season every year. Um, not really notice the difference.
1: Yeah. And I almost feel like there should be like a flow chart or like an app or something where it's like, all right, pick this, the whether you're in the pre pre rut, pre rut, rut, or post rut, and then pick what moon phase it's in. And then it'll tell you, like, all right, here's how you should hunt them. <laughs>
0: yeah. I think there's, uh, you know, I downloaded one. You think there's the Elk Nut app. There's a the Chris Rowe hunting resources. I know Elk 101 has a downloadable app. So they've all kind of got, somewhat of a variant from that but mm-hmm. you know, i think the more sources you get it from the better right? yeah you'll you just kind of learn it for yourself and it'll become intuitive pretty quick like you'll gotcha. it's not super hard to tell the difference between those two those two or three phases uh you know you'll just you'll pick that one up pretty fast so i wouldn't worry about it too much um but there's there's very different elk hunting strategies which we'll talk about later this you know year before elk season Mm-hmm. Uh, about how to approach that and how to hunt them and the way you call and all that sort of stuff.
1: Yeah. So, anyway, so then yep, uh, what, what goes like, what are some of the most important factors in your mind when you try to decide what time of the month to go?
0: Man, I'm going to be a broken record here again. Once when <laughs> I get the most time off, right? Like that's right. That, okay. Um, and I actually don't. So if I had ideal choices, I'd actually go, a little bit earlier because it's easier to call them in and I know people haven't been there because uh, I don't think this is another pet theory of mine but if elk haven't been pressured they don't move they'll stay in the area it's not seen the same bull in the same valleys year after year uh, so I like to be there first just because I know that they'll be there and I get first crack at them mm-hmm. uh, but you know maybe we start talking about that secret recipe for 10 days off five days of vacation time how about that
1: yeah. You mean 10 days of hunting and only five days off that of PTO, right?
0: Yep. Good save. Yeah, <laughs> nice. that's exactly it. Because <laughs> that's my answer, right? And I know that I can get the most amount of hunting time for that. So here's the strategy. Let me break it out pretty clear. Uh, Labor Day weekends, if I can, I'll take Friday off too. If the employer's not really down with that, I'm just taking the five days off you know, for, a, for a week off later. But drive out Labor Day weekend. Get there, you know, the Friday night of Labor Day, which is generally uh, the opening weekend for a lot of places. I think this year it's on the seventh, so it's actually more towards the middle of the month. Mm-hmm. But get there, hunt two or three days, or three or four days, depending on when you, if you got there Friday or Saturday. Then at the end of that time, Monday night, I'll drive the car back to the airport, the closest airport near it, you know, in Denver, Boise, whatever it is, drop the car off, fly home for the week, spend four days working fly back up Friday night and take the whole week off. So then you're going to get, you know, another six to seven days at least of hunting on top of that. So now for only taking five days of vacation, you've got 10 full days of hunting and the ability to drive your stuff out there and drive it home. Does that make sense? That makes
1: sense. And you went by really quick because I know the first time I heard that, I was like, wait, what? So let me try to reiterate it. So you take Labor Day, you take Labor Day. It's Friday uh, you drive out to wherever you're going to go hunt. Mm-hmm. You hunt for the whole weekend in your hunting location. Then you get your car at the end of your hunt, drive it to the airport and leave it at the airport. Leave fly, it in long-term parking. Yep. Leave it in long-term parking. Fly home. Get home on Monday night, let's say, Labor Day, Monday night. Then you work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, mm-hmm. Friday. Mm-hmm. Then at the end of the day, Friday after work, you fly back out to where your car is parked at the airport. Yep. You pick it up, you drive out to the hunting spot, and then you hunt Saturday, Sunday, take the whole week off. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Saturday, Sunday. Sunday. Then you drive back
0: to, or drive back home maybe, or drive back to the airport and then fly back. Yep. And there's a few things that are glorious with that, right? One is you, as you learned with turkey hunting this week, no matter how in shape you are, the first time you go backpacking, it's going to just break you. Like it's mm-hmm. just hip flexors and a lot of things you haven't used. So, you know, if you're, you can just show up that weekend, do three, four days, get wrecked, go back and recover for three, four days and get to a great state for that next week off. That's one benefit too. You know, we talked about definitely want to take that trip before elk season, but even still, you might get in there and go, oh man, my gear doesn't work that great. You've got four days to make adjustments, buy extra food, do whatever it is, right? Right. Wow. So there's a lot of benefits to doing that approach. And then the last thing I'll say to try to protect my my hunting time is that you don't have to you don't have to do Labor Day weekend. Yeah, you get that extra day, but you can do that with any other weekend too. Uh, so if you're like, hey, I really want to do middle of the month or the end of the month, yeah, just do it because the magic is that that full week you've got off, you're not getting there Sunday night, right? You show up Friday night. And boom, you're ready to go into the mountains because your car's sitting there and you're two or three hour drive from where you're going. Right,
1: right. I didn't even think about the fact that that first weekend you get, you know, two, three, four days of backpacking, hard alk Then you come
0: home, mm-hmm. recover for four days, and then go back out again. I never thought about that part. That's, yeah. that's huge. And also if you're, you know, you're a new guy and you're a little worried about picking good spots, mm-hmm. you can use that first weekend to tell if elk are around. Yes, you drop in. If you don't find elk, you bump to another spot. Don't find elk, bump to another spot. Worst case scenario, you're like, wow, I hit through my A, B, and C spot, number one, two, three, and didn't find elk. You've got four days to go look through Google Earth again and pull up your you know, DEFG spots and be like, okay, right. what's the best? Uh, so it gives you, gives you that time you need. And I think that's, you know, if you're looking at something that's going to make you successful, it's not finding the perfect time of the month to go it's spending more time hunting and that's, that's kind of the answer there. Um, So there's not, it's not magic, but you know, combining what you know about what time of the month to go, you know, when the the elk are doing it, when the moon's doing it and when you want to get there, you can come up with a pretty good plan.
1: Gotcha. So whether to drive, whether to fly and when to go, just maximize your
0: time actually on the ground hunting. Totally. That's, that's really what it's all about. And I think, uh, and we always get to wrap up with a fun story. But I remember last year, uh, you know, I shot my bull the first, first Friday of that, that kind of strategy, which was awesome. First day, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was so perfect because what we ended up doing was just driving it out, dropping it off the butcher. That means you had two full weeks to get it ready from when we left. Then my wife had a tag. So we got to go back up, scout two or three places. We figured out, hey, man, this is where we want to be. We spent the whole next week there. We got her into like five or six opportunities. None of them panned out, but just that ability to go, wow, like the elk season's already in the bag. Go back, enjoy it. Like that's that's such a priceless thing. Dang. Yeah.
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay. So I think yeah, I'm definitely gonna drive and fly. I think, and then I'm probably not gonna go. After September 15, because that's when everybody's going to be there. So,
0: I and also, you know, like another cool thing in that strategy, you've got to have a really understanding significant other or none at all. But uh, I mean, you could do it, you know, the sky's your limit. You could do that weekend, go back for a week you don't get an elk you're like forget it i'm coming back next weekend too like you could keep going every weekend (laughs) as long as your funds hold out does that make sense
1: like yeah i see what you're saying so you do the oh i see what you're saying i take the first do it like the first two weeks of the trip and if it if i still don't get an elk after 10 days of hunting and i'm like
0: Dang it! I want to go back. I could just go back another weekend. That's right. Yep. If you're all in on that, it'd be really easy to get you know under $200 flights right now to these places because airlines are so so wrecked uh, just those weekends. And you could always cancel it, right? Or you know, if you if you do earlier in the month and you get out that end of that week, and like, well, I want to do it. You could easily book the last weekend in the season, and uh, that's two or three weeks out. You're probably not going to get completely gouged on your plane ticket, right? So, there's a lot of options there. Yeah. The other one, the last bit I'll say on that is like, don't everyone thinks, oh man, I got to fly out Sunday night or Monday night, right? Uh, Which, you know, that makes sense, but there's the flights are always really expensive and you got to be there ahead of the flights. It's going to cut into your hunting. Mm -hmm. Pretty easy to get ultra early morning flights and get back home in time, especially if you're on the West Coast. So, we actually get our flights for that Labor Day weekend Tuesday morning. Because the flight's at 6 a.m. In Boise, you gain an hour going back home. And all of a sudden, you're sitting at the airport at 8 a.m. Works in an hour. Right? Oh, that's you've right. got an extra half day, a whole other day of hunting. So, you just book a cheap hotel near the airport and go for it.
1: That's right. I, I do remember you coming back. <laughs> you being super tired that Tuesday. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know. Every now and then you got to just put life in front
1: of work a bit. Oh yeah, for sure. I went to a a music festival last year. Uh, No, two years ago, I went to Coachella and then I, (laughs) terrible. Oh man, I don't know if you're earning credit here, Josh. (laughs) (laughs) I know, but uh, it was like Sunday night. Last day of the festival, it was awesome. And then uh, drove back to my brother's apartment in Riverside, slept at like 2 a.m. And then had work Monday morning. So Monday morning, I got up super early, drove to work. And I don't really, I'm not a coffee person, but that day I drank like a Yerba Mate, you know, a hundred plus milligrams of caffeine oh, yeah. and I had a great work day and then just went home and just crashed. So it's, <laughs> it's one work day, but like, it's not bad.
0: Oh, you're buzzing too. At that point in time, you're so happy because you just did the thing you were super excited about and right, right. all good stuff. <laughs> but yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Well, lots of good, good stuff in there. Hopefully that helps you and a lot of other guys pick, you know, when they're going, hopefully also don't see, you know, 300 guys show up Labor Day weekend, but like I said, (laughs) you can can do that any weekend. So it's not, not unique to that. Right. Um, so good stuff.
1: Yeah. Super smart. Um, yeah, I think the, the more people hear this, like the more this is going to spread and that, that strategy of combining driving, flying, only taking five days off and getting 10 days of hunting. It's like a no brainer.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, if I was being selfish, I wouldn't tell anybody that. But I think it's like just more guys out there enjoying it, the better, right? Like we all love it. And I'm no different than the guys out there that are loving it too. So, you know, hopefully guys just can use that and have a good time and be respectful of each other. And hey, like I said before, it's more about getting away from the people. So the more people, the elk will always be there. They'll always be somewhere. It's just, you know, where you want to go. Um, and I know a lot of guys, it's a lot of effort and logistics to go do anyway. So, Um, I feel safe saying that because I I think only guys that really, really want it are going to give that a shot.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of effort that goes into this, but like you said, the more effort up front makes the the hunting more enjoyable and likelihood of success just goes up and up. Um, Yeah, totally. Yeah.
0: Well, that's kind of it for today, but you know, as always baxterbowman.com B A X T E R.com. They've I've got this article up. I think it's like piece number six or five in the series, just go to the Hunt Elk 2020 series. You'll see it called out clearly, flying versus driving. Um, sign up for the newsletter. That's the best way we can keep it in touch with you. It's only one time a week, but we'll tell you every podcast, every article, every gear review, all this stuff goes in one place. You don't have to deal with logging in and checking it. Just every week, we'll get to your door. Uh, and then finally, everyone says it for a reason. Please help us out by rating or subscribing to the podcast. Um, think it's the word out keeps the odds up. We get to keep doing this stuff um, and uh, reach out. We love to hear from people. Like it's super exciting to talk about this, but it's even more exciting when you hear from guys that are saying, Oh yeah, I want to do that. Or what do you think about this? So all ears.
1: Yeah. You can always follow Baxter Bowman on Instagram. If you're an Instagram person. Oh yeah. Um, and then as always, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. It's is super fun for me to do. Um, I hope it, I hope we get more and more listeners so I can
0: spend more time doing it. Yes sir. Well, Exciting stuff. And uh, what are we talking about next weekend? We're going to picking elk hunting spots with e-scouting. So we get to get real nerdy on this stuff. But tune back in and there'll be more about that then. Thanks and hopefully you guys. I'll
1: be successful this weekend and get to share a tur- turkey story. Damn it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That'd be pretty nice. That I want to do a, a separate turkey podcast for sure. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. All right, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Signing out.